it's lovely to be here. I've never been uh, in Pushkin House before. Um, and until um, last September, I had never been to Russia. Uh, but part of the reason for being here tonight is because in September, I did spend a week in Russia, just Moscow and St. Petersburg. Um, and uh, this will link in with what I'm going to say about my great, great, great uncle, Benjamin Lee Smith, uh, who I have to say is well represented here by, not by direct descendants, unfortunately, the direct descendants have all died out, but by the sort of diaspora of great, 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 great nieces and nephews. Um, so thank you, um, Ben people, for coming. Um, and yes, so, that, so I'm going to talk in my capacity as a great, great, great niece, rather than in my capacity as an, uh, a polar expert and uh, climate change scientist. <laughs> so just bear that in mind as you prepare your questions at the end. Um, now, uh, I'm going to call him Uncle Ben, because that's what he uh, is always referred to in our family. Um, Uncle Ben was, uh, to coin a phrase, a larger-than-life character. Um, and in our family, he's actually always been both a hero and a villain. Um, a hero because of his five expeditions to the Arctic, uh, one of which I'm particularly going to talk about tonight. A villain because he did his level best to make sure that our great-grandparents didn't get married because he was very, very opposed to their uh, romance uh, so he's a villain because he tried to tear them asunder, and if he had succeeded, this side of the room wouldn't be here tonight. <laughs> um, so anyway, hero and villain, but that's, an, that's enough about um, uh, Uncle Ben as a control freak uh, <laughs> uncle. Uh, his control freakery stood him in very good stead uh, when on the last of his five expeditions, which is the one I'm going to say most about, uh, his ship, the Ira, was wrecked and sank, uh, and he uh, led the crew of 25 people through uh, nine, ten months of, um, of being stranded in the Arctic, overwintering, and then made an escape the following summer, and that's going to be kind of the main story tonight. Um, so, here ha we have a very inadequate map. Um, it's just really to show you the bit we're talking about. Uh, uh, no detail. This is Franz Josef Land. There's the North Pole. There's Franz Josef Land. Uh, and that's where uh, Ben's last two expeditions were, and that's where the shipwreck took place. And just to put it in a, a quick bit of uh, historical perspective, he, his, he went there in uh, 1880 uh, and 1881, and it had only been discovered in 1873. So it was a very new piece of the world, Franz Josef Land. Um, and so Ben's expeditions were geographically and scientifically important, even though the second one there ended in uh, dramatic disaster. Um, when he had the shipwreck, so when all the crew of the ship had to spend uh, 
this long, long, long Arctic winter uh, camping there, they were the first human beings who'd ever spent the night there, let alone nine or ten months of Arctic night. It was uninhabited by humans. Um, this is just a quick glimpse of Ben as a youth. And ben, um, ben Lee Smith was um, the one of five children of a... Sorry, you in the wrong talk? Well, if you've got any refugees down there, then... <laughs> unusual Victorian family. Their, their father, uh, who was also a Ben, Ben Smith, um, was a, a rich man and a radical MP. Uh, and he came from a big family of um, Unitarians who were very much involved in public life. Um, Unitarians believe, part of their set of beliefs is that uh, you, you're judged by your actions in this world, um, and so uh, philanthropy, uh, altruism, social reform is all very, very big part of Unitarian life. Um, Ben's father, Ben Senior, was uh, one of his. He was one of ten, and one of his sisters was, was um, called uh, Fanny. Uh, she married. Mr. Nightingale and gave birth to the fairly well-known Florence. So Florence Nightingale was one of Ben's first cousins, and there was a, there, she's just the most famous example of a, a lot of kind of um, quite progressive uh, Victorians in this family. But Ben Senior, as I say, was, was quite wealthy. He had quite a lot of property, um, and he was being a Unitarian. Um, there were lots of things you weren't allowed to do. For instance, you, you could study at Oxford or Cambridge, but you couldn't actually take your degree because you weren't Anglican. Uh, there were certain professions you were still not uh, able to go into and so on. So um, though they were, uh, in many ways, obviously privileged, there were still aspects of life which were a bit restricted for them. Um, ben Senior did not marry into his own clan or his own class. In fact, he didn't marry at all. On a visit to the Nightingales in Derbyshire, he caught, uh, his fancy was caught by a, a pretty young um, working class girl working as a milliner. Uh, she was called Anne Longdon. Um, he fell for her. Uh, she became pregnant. Um, he did not marry her, but he took her down to East Sussex, the village where I live now, and he installed her in a house there, and she gave birth to uh, their first child, Barbara. Um, I'll tell you why they're all dressed up in a minute. Um, and then second child, Ben, and then three more children, uh, Nanny, Bella, and Willie. Um, and... Um, so they had a very unconventional background. One sort of upper class 
father, for want of a better word, one, a working class mother, not married, but totally acknowledged as, as, a, as a couple. Um, the reason why Ben Senior didn't marry the mother, um, it wasn't because of the sort of social gulf between them as such. He, he always said that he didn't, he disapproved of marriage because it treated a, a woman just as a sort of chattel and a sort of property of her husband. So he didn't want to kind of dishonour Anne by marrying her. Well, all very well and good. It sounds fantastic, but after his death, this family were rather dismayed to find that he had another similar family that they had <laughs> never heard about who were living in Hammersmith, and there were even rumours of a third <laughs> family. So talk about having your cake and eating it. That's what it sounds like to me. Anyway, nevertheless, he was, uh, he was a, a devoted father, and the milliner died of TB um, after the birth of the fifth child, whereupon Ben, the father, um, installed all the children in, uh, they had two homes, they had a house near here, Blanford Square, and they had a house in Hastings on the seafront, a new build then, a nice, uh, elegant um, uh, crescent of houses overlooking the sea, and perhaps that's where Ben got his love of the sea from. He spent most of his childhood looking straight out onto it. And the, his, I won't go on too much about their um, childhood, but here they are as young people putting on an Amdram production of Twelfth Night, and Ben is Malvolio, uh, Barbara, who later became Barbara Beauchamp, who's a, a feminist campaigner and founder of Girton College, Cambridge, amongst other things, uh, and that's their sister Bella as Olivia. So that's just a little glimpse of um, sort of family life. Uh, there's Ben as a young Ishman. Um, the beard stayed stayed with him, stayed with us, um, and grew and grew. Um, and as a young man he went to Jesus College Cambridge he, his father wanted him to read for the, to become a lawyer uh, which he did begin to do but then uh, he, he was restless he was a really outdoors person and when his fa first his father died and then a rich cousin died and left him bulk of their property he then had a, a, enough funds that he could do what he liked, and he became an explorer. Um, and this actually is jumping on hugely, um, because I don't have photographs for his first three Arctic voyages. It was believed until recently that, there, that no photographs of the first three voyages had survived. Actually, the good news is the photographs from one of those three earlier 1870s voyages voyages has survived and they're in Stockholm and they're being worked on at the moment but they haven't yet seen the public light of day um, but quite soon these long lost photographs will be widely available however not tonight um, so just very briefly his first three voyages, first one was a voyage of what was then called um, sport it was for sport and of course what sport meant was shooting everything that could lift a flipper or flap a wing. And it was a, a, a gentleman's uh, adventure. Off they went and slayed 
vast numbers of seabirds and sea mammals and so on. Not much else on the first expedition. But Ben actually was an intelligent man, and he realised that there was more to the Arctic than just, <laughs> just gore. Um, and so he then became seriously interested in, in um, marine biology, uh, and he started taking uh, proper records of what, of, of what he found. He, he started taking um, temperatures of the ocean, which this data proved really interesting and useful. Um, I am no expert on it, but uh, one thing that's interesting is that counterintuitively, the lower uh, temperatures, the further down the temperatures were taken, the warmer they became, which um, you know, lots of new thoughts developed from that, that fact. Um, these, ex- these first three expeditions didn't get as far as Franz Joseph Land. They were... Um, Carl Svalbard. Svalbard, thank you. <laughs> Svalbard. Um, and uh, the, on the most famous of these three, he went to the rescue of a stranded expedition who'd all got stuck there and they were starving and uh, running out of everything. And Ben got then suspected that this might have happened and he went to look for them uh, with extra supplies and rescued them. So that was a sort of fairly major escapade. So three expeditions in the 1870s, and then he would have gone on, except he had a bad cab accident. A, a, a handsome cab crashed with him in it and cut his um, tendons in his hands, and this was um, uh, knocked him out for quite a while, on top of which he got typhoid, just in the way people did in, in those days. So he was actually kind of quite weakened for quite a long time. Um, it's, gener- it's often said about Florence Nightingale that she and her family... Uh, wouldn't communicate with the Lee Smiths because the Lee Smiths were illegitimate. But this actually isn't true because I, I found in a, a family diary that Florence Nightingale sent Ben fresh flowers every day when he was ill with his typhoid and so on. Um, so they clearly were in touch. Uh, anyway, he got better and he decided he, the first three expeditions he'd had uh, ships that didn't belong to him. But he decided that he wanted to commission his own um, ship. And this is her. She is called um, Ira. Nobody, E-I-R-A, nobody quite knows um, what, why she's called Ira, but it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's a sort of seabird, probably the name of a seabird uh, in uh, North? North? No, Celtic. I'm not, I don't know. Anyway, no one's quite sure. Um, there she is. Now, what, what did Ben want to achieve? He wanted to go to uh, Franz Josef Land, which was this newly discovered area. He did want to get to the North Pole. I mean, of course, they all wanted to get to the North Pole. No one had done that at that point. Um, so he did want that, but he wanted also just to map and explore loads of unknown territory, which he, he did do. And in the first hour of voyage, he, um, the 44 new places were identified and named by him. And he had this habit of calling his new places uh, by the names of family and friends and colleagues. Um, and those names still exist. So, for instance, there's Mabel Island, which was named after uh, one of his nieces. Um, and now the, these names have just been Russianized because this area is all now uh, in... 
under in Russian territory. So you've got all these names that, um, which now have a, a, a ski or whatever on the end of the, uh, of the word. Um, so a huge amount of, of mapping and uh, also collecting lots of specimens for uh, fossils and also living specimens, um, birds and indeed polar bears. Um, on the, one of his earlier voyages, he'd taken back a polar bear called Samson for London Zoo. Uh, Samson made a bid for freedom on board ship and was about to leap over the side, but Uncle Ben in person <laughs> roughly tackled Samson. He was a young polar bear, I think. And uh, <laughs> got him back into his cage. And Samson made it to London Zoo and lived there for many years. I won't quite say lived happily there for many years, but anyway, he lived there for many years being fed buns on the end of old ladies' umbrellas. Um, on the, Ara, he brought back a pair of cubs, but sadly they, they did get back to the zoo, but didn't last that long. Um, but he was collecting lots of, uh, lots of recording. He recorded, for instance, an ivory gull colony, a big ivory gull colony. The, the data of that... Uh, is of interest now because ivory gulls are a bit like polar bears. They can only uh, exist on ice conditions. And so by having a kind of um, hundred and... I can't do the math, nearly 150-year-old record of, of a certain ivory gull colony is of importance um, in terms of changing ice conditions. So, um, he commissioned Ira to be built. She was built at Peterhead in Scotland. She is both steam and sail, uh, three masts, and there's the funnel. Um, she is extra thick, uh, built for ice, um, and fairly kind of lavishly appointed inside. Um, she weighs, for those of you who like this sort of thing, 360 tonnes, uh, 125 feet. The hull is three foot thick. Uh, the bow is eight foot thick. Um, she cost £10,000, which is, of course, I don't know, multiplied by a factor of 10, uh, something like that. 100. 100, sorry, Peter, yes, all It wasn't far out, was it? 100. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, Ben found some of the money himself, but he also uh, was financed by a, an even richer uh, cousin, Valentine Smith. Um, so here she is um, in ice on the way, on the first of her two voyages. Uh, here they are, they, they've only just set off here, on board Ira. There's Uncle Ben. Uh, this is a, an important character in the story, the ship's doctor, Dr. Neil, who was a crucial figure in, in Ben's life. Um, this, rather surprisingly, is Arthur Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes, etc. Now, um, Conan Doyle didn't go all the way to... Uh, with Ben on his voyage. He's actually on a different Arctic voyage and the two ships have met and they, 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 they've come aboard. They're, they're having a stopping. It's very early in the, in the expedition. They haven't really got beyond you know, the Scottish coast yet. 
and they, they kind of, they're exchanging pleasantries. Um, and Conan Doyle, who was then a young medical student at Edinburgh University, has come aboard just to have a look. And he did then go on on a different Arctic expedition and wrote a story about it called The Captain of the Pole Star. And I kind of quite like to think that Dr. Neil physically is a little bit of inspiration. <laughs> a little bit of a similarity. Anyway, there they are. And it, I, I never cease to marvel at these very old photographs with fantastic quality. The way you can see, I don't know if you can back there, but you know, the, the reflections of their legs on the shining deck. Very, very good. Um, so here is Ira taking fresh water. Um, the non-boats she's got are going to be very important in the story. She was um, the first vessel to test the theory that if an attempt was made to penetrate loose pack ice late in the season, Franz Joseph Land could be reached. I wrote that down. Um, so, here she is, and it says, August 14, 1880, arrived at Franz Joseph Land, anchored to land ice off May Island. So this is the first site of Franz Joseph Land, and uh, it's an unexplored island, May Island, um, and uh, it's named, May is named after actually a, a, a naval officer, an artist, who had served on uh, expeditions to try and find Sir John Franklin. I should have already mentioned Franklin, who, whose ill-fated expeditions have happened um, earlier in the 19th century, and because of the disaster, the disappearance, the, the mystery of Franklin's disappearance, which was never, uh, never properly solved, um, that's why there were so few expeditions, certainly why there were no government-funded expedition, because it had been such a catastrophe losing Franklin. And that's why it was down to gentlemen explorers such as Ben, privately financing expeditions. That was... Um, how Arctic exploration went. Uh, so here we have um, Ira Harbour, named after the ship, then named after the ship, and Castle Peak, simply named because it looks like a castle. Uh, well, that's actually Cathedral Point, that's what it's called. And um, this is on Mabel Island, this island named after one of his nieces. There's Uncle Ben pulling up a uh, a boat and Ira is in the distance um, and I, I like this photograph because you just got a sense of the landscape and, and the sort of timeliness really of, of the ship in this kind of absolutely uncharted territory uh, there are the crew the crew were 25 men um, in the crew, one boy of 15 and the rest kind of grown ups uh, and as you can see, they really were grown ups because look at them with their shirt sleeves. You know, I mean, they are in the Arctic, and you know, <laughs> they have got—they uh, haven't even got gloves on. Blind. Um, that one's the cook because he's got a, an apron on. They're basically sort of um, mainly Scots uh, fishing, tough fishing, recruited for their um, powers of of uh, 
some durability. Here's uh, something they had to do rather a lot of. They are skinning a polar bear. Um, they, this is the, the first on the first expedition. They're doing this in order to save the skins and bring the skins back as souvenirs. Um, on the second expedition, they had to kill and skin polar bears in order to eat them to stay alive. But that hasn't happened yet. This is um, pre-disaster. Uh, and polar bears, when sort of stretched out, cover an awful lot of area. Um, you can see the, how ornate the ship is, very, very beautiful. And here, walruses stretched out, spreading over even a larger area. This is a walrus <laughs> cascading down. And they're, so they're cleansing the walrus, sort of making, you know, getting all the upper off, off the skin. Um, lots of good detail there of, of all the kind of fixtures and fittings of the ship. But yeah, you have to have a fairly strong stomach. And last gruesome one, skinning a seal on a, on a little ice floe. Um, that's again, I rather like that picture, the sense of the huge ocean all around them. And this is Ira Harbour, and there is Ira in her own harbour named after her. Uh, you get this wonderful curving um, sense of the landscape, uh, and that's an island that was called Bell, then named Bell Island. This is taken from the summit of May Island, and this area was actually quite... Um, it, it, quite luxurious in uh, vegetation. He then recorded nine different kind of wildflowers there. This is obviously in the summer. It's in about July, August. Um, nine different kinds of flowers. Um, things like he names a little, uh, a little ranunculus, you know, a bit like a little yellow buttercup. Yeah, thank you, Tom. <laughs> but also other kinds of little... Um, low-growing pink and white and, you know, so actually quite pretty and really, really rich in, um, in bird life. Orcs, as well as gulls and guillemots and all sorts. Um, and of course, all this wildlife never, ever seen humans before. Um, so here we have uh, Ira in Franz Josef Land showing the ice conditions um, this is at the, more or less at the limit of the whole Irish Western exploration of uh, Franz Josef Land. And on this expedition, they travelled for 110 nautical miles before the weather closed in and they had to return to Britain. And on the way back, uh, this is Ira near Hammerfest um, being repaired. There's some damage has been done and she's, she's being repaired. Um, and um, one of the Arctic experts at the time, Clement Markham, uh, said that this expedition was the most important summer cruise that had ever been made to the Arctic in terms of the discoveries made. Uh, this is the furthest they got. This is uh, yeah, this, this point. 
and then they had to turn back. Um, now, um, I don't know whether there are any arachnophobes in the room, but if there are, look away now, because one of the things Ben found was a lovely sea spider, uh, which was named after him because it was his discovery. So let me introduce you to Anamorincus smithii. <laughs> of course, this is his modern descendant because it's in colour. <laughs> And here is Ben's map of his travels with the, the names, lots of the names of the places that he identified. Uh, and this is where he's going to have his shipwreck, Cape Flora. Cape Flora is named not, as you might think, after the fairly abundant uh, plant life, but after another cousin, cousin Flora, sister of the, the, cousin, the very rich cousin who had given him so much financial help. Right, okay, so actually let's get back to that now, because now we have a pause in the photos, um, because that's the end of Expedition 1 for Ira. Following year, she went out again to, to try and do more of the same, get further. Um, but though they took photographic equipment and a photographer on board for the second expedition, none of those photographs survived because of the wreck. So, in late August uh, 1881, um, the IRA was anchored to, to ice, sort of solid ice, and then moving ice came alongside on the other side, and she was nipped uh, in the middle, unexpectedly, it happened very quickly, and she sank. And uh, the crew had a few hours to get everything off that they could. It was obvious they couldn't save her. Uh, they worked really hard. They recovered a lot, and because she was, she'd actually been equipped for a two-year voyage, so there was a lot of supplies on board. And they got off a lot of food, a lot of ammunition. Um, and a lot of very important things like um, champagne, 72 <laughs> bottles of champagne uh, they, they managed to rescue. Um, and they luckily saved their very large uh, damask tablecloths, which came very handy later, as you will, you will I mean, of course, you will really, you, it goes without saying that if you're going to, on an Arctic expedition, you take embroidered damask tablecloths. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? But in this case, it did prove lucky. Uh, and yeah, they took, uh, they got guns, they got quite a lot of bedding, they got quite a lot of clothing. Um, but the, what did go to the bottom were all the collections, all the fossils, all the things they collected, and all the photographic stuff, amongst other things. Uh, so they had a few hours to get all this stuff onto the shore. The shore was um, rocky with a certain amount of plant life in summer, uh, and reasonably sheltered. There was a sort of Cliffs up above them, they could fight, they could make a, a sort of quite sheltered spot. Um, but there they were, standing uh, in the Arctic with no prospect of letting anybody know uh, that they were there. Of course, this is way before any kind of radio or anything like that. Um, all they could hope was that people back at home would guess what had happened to them and try to find them and rescue them. But no one was going to do that until the following year because no expedition would have risked going out towards the end of the 
summer season. Um, so it looked quite grim. So, as I said earlier, no human being had even spent one night on these shores before, let alone an indefinitely long period of time. When the men, the men were kind of quite feisty, and they started grumbling, and they said, now when a ship uh, sinks, the the men, the crew no longer have to obey the captain. The the rules of that bond is dissolved. So the men started saying, we went to the captain, who wasn't Ben, Ben was the master, not the captain. Um, The men started saying, we're not going to do what you say, why should we do what you say? You know, um, you're not the captain anymore. And Ben said, I can do much better without you than you can do without me. So you do what I say and you'll all survive. Uh, and they did. And, uh, and they did all survive. Um, so there they were, um, 25 men. Bob the dog, who's a retriever, we'll meet Bob later. Um, cat and a canary, of course, again, obviously. Um, and so they set about building a house. First of all, they kind of camped under the, uh, they used the sails as canvas, um, but that was, wasn't going to keep them warm for long. So then they built a hut uh, called Flora, um, Flora Cottage. And Flora Cottage doesn't exist anymore. Flora Cottage has got sort of um, bashed away by the elements. A model of Flora Cottage was made later, and here is a photograph of the model. The model itself has also disappeared, unfortunately. So this photograph is the only sort of 3D idea of the cottage, complete with a little sort of ceramic polar bear there. Um, Of course, this shows the inside. Of course, this was all covered. Um, But it's made with rock from the surroundings, um, driftwood, and also spars that they managed to slice off the Ara's mast as she sank down. And... uh, canvas and mud and whatever they could get like and, uh, to, to fill in the cracks. And of course the proprieties were observed, this is a Victorian expedition, so the gentlemen, uh, Ben and Captain Neil, uh, Dr Neil and a couple of others slept up one end, cooking arrangements in the middle and then the, the men all down that end. And um, they had to survive on. They had lots of food that they'd saved from the ship, but Ben knew that if they were going to make the escape the following summer, they needed to keep their tinned food for that. So they had to be very, very sparing with what they could eat uh, before that. So they mainly lived off polar bear meat and walrus meat and the meat of seabirds, um, which they boiled in a um, sort of cooking arrangement in the middle of a hut, which did get quite um, smoky, and uh, they had saved some coal from the ship, they rescued some coal, but that wasn't going to seem to be enough fuel for the whole winter, so they mainly used blubber um, and the oil out of the animals' stomachs that they'd killed, so you can imagine it was all fairly rank. However... Um, one thing that was quite interesting was that not a single person got scurvy, you know, the dreaded uh, seagoer's disease, which is thought to be about um, you've got to eat fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, but actually if you eat the meat 
I know it's veganuary, but you know. Okay. <laughs> um, if you eat the meat, uh, absolutely fresh. It's got all the vitamins in it. Um, so that's why none of them got scurvy. Um, and in fact, they, they fed quite well. I'll just, um, I'll just write a read a bit from Ben's log, which describes their day. Uh, this is what he was writing with pencil, because he, he, he started off his, his log with ink, but then it either ran out or froze, and so he writes it in pencil. This log is in the Scott Poli Museum in Cambridge now. Um, and this is his uh, sort of typical day. We breakfasted at 8 a.m. and had about 10 pounds of bear and walrus meat cut up, cut up small, made into soup, boiled for about four hours. Each man had about a pint of tea with sugar and milk. We dined at 12.30 and had about 15 pounds of bear and walrus meat boiled up, made into soup. Each man had a dough boy made with a quarter of a pound of flour and boiled in the soup, so it was sort of dumpling. Each man had a small glass of rum at 4pm, except on Saturdays when he had a large one at 6 <laughs> We had tea at 5pm, which consists of 10 pounds of beer and water, um, etc. A pint of tea, etc., um, etc. Et Meat cut up, weighed, measured out, and measured out in the afternoon. Uh, the water for cooking was got by melting ice or snow during the night. Um, so the, uh, the ship's cook um, and the boy, the, the, the teenage boy, did all the cooking. Uh, they worked from 6am to 6pm, um, cutting up all the blubber, cutting up the wood as well. Captain Lockley made the doughboys, and the doctor served out the food into 25 tins made from old provision tins. The men's tins were handed in to them, and they sat up in bed and ate their food like a lot of blackbirds in a nest. Um, so very, very organised. You know, it's no, it's no free for all. It's absolutely, you know, everyone knows what they're doing. On Sunday morning at 9:30, the ship's bell rang for prayers, and the doctor officiated. So he doubled up as as priest. Um, so this kind of organisation, this, this regime, was crucial to their survival. Now, eventually, after this long, long, long winter. Uh, in which there were moments when the survival did look very dodgy. Um, the canary died on Christmas Day, good timing, um, but everyone else got through, um, but it was, you know, obviously a huge worry. Um, round about Queen Victoria's birthday in May, which of course they celebrated with some of the champagne and, and a dance, uh, uh, they began to get excited because they could, the water was beginning to melt and, and to run, and they realised that they now had to get ready to try and make their escape. So they got this, the little the long boats that they'd saved, and they created sails out of the um, tablecloths that they had so carefully preserved, and also patched together with other bed sheets and things that they got. And they filled up the ships with the canned provisions that they saved, and also they used the old can, some old cans to put walrus meat into enough for a long, well, quite a long time. They reckoned about two months worth of provisions they put into these um, uh, boats and ammunition and so on. And then they finally set off in late June, I think. 
think it was, uh, they set off just on op well open seas and also stopping every now and then when there's no sort of masses of ice, stopping, dragging the boats over the ice, getting out to the next bit of clear water and so on and so on. And they didn't know at this point whether anyone was coming to look for them or not. So they thought they might have to get all the way back to Britain just in these little boats with these tablecloth sails. <laughs> Actually, um, there was a rescue expedition. Uh, one had been funded. The government were very, very stingy about providing the funding. So family and friends had provided uh, enough. And there was a, a, a rescue ship called the Hope coming to meet them. And after they'd travelled for about 470 miles in these boats, often in very, very stormy conditions and really dangerous, and at last they met up with the Hope, um, and they were all taken aboard. And so this next week, next week photos are from that part of the story. The cameraman on board the Hope um, took them. And so... There's Uncle Ben, not looking all that cheerful at having been rescued. Perhaps he, perhaps he secretly wanted to get all the way back to, to, to uh, Britain himself without help. But there he is aboard the Hope, uh, wearing his yachting cap. Um, I don't know if it's the same yachting cap, but many, many years later, when he went to visit my grandfather, his, his great-nephew at school, my grandfather was embarrassed <coughs> that Uncle Ben wore his yachting cap to, to the school open day. Um, so that, perhaps it wasn't quite the same one. Anyway, there he is, beard kept and very warm. And here he is chatting to Dr. Neil uh, on board the Hope again. I like this one because they look so natural. You know, you can see they are actually sort of having a chat. Uh, there's some of the crew. These photographs are on very thin paper and they've been pasted into... Um, an album, so you can see all the ripples. It's not very good quality, um, all the sort of creases and so on. So here are quite a few of the crew. They've, they've got their hats with Ira on still. Uh, that's the teenage boy, whose name was Tommy. On the way home, and there's two of them um, uh, that one, uh, Hudson and Kane, the carpenter and the ice second master. And <laughs> there is the great Bob. Um, Bob survived. I'm afraid the cat didn't. Uh, but Bob made it all the way back. And Bob was really crucial to the whole thing because when they'd been in, um, uh, in their winter... And um, Bob used to draw the polar bears closer to them to get them within range of the guns. So Bob would sort of run out and attract the attention of the polar bears who would come closer and then the men could manage to shoot the bears that they needed. Uh, so Bob was a bit of a national hero when they got that. <laughs> and there's a nice bit in one of the family diaries about um, uh, some female fans of Bob who embroidered him a beautiful silk collar with um, uh, In Memoriam Ira embroidered on it. So they potentially, the whole, there we are, Ben has uh, an engraving of him, so he's become a bit of a national hero as well. Potentially a celebrity, but he didn't want to be a celebrity. He absolutely hated 
publicity. And in fact, he said he dreaded public acclaim worse than ice. <laughs> his words. Uh, he got the gold medal from the Royal Geographic so- uh, Society. Uh, people wanted to, him to write up his story. Uh, they wanted him to become a public figure, but he ducked out of it. And when he was supposed to give a sort of major speech at the Royal Geographical Society, he pulled out uh, on the, at the last minute on the basis that he had a cold. Uh, well, that must have sounded a bit lame coming from someone. <laughs> uh, but uh, he, he, this, is, this is just him, really. He was an extremely forceful character. But he, he, his, everything he writes is quite impersonal and detached. He did not like personal exposure. Uh, he liked getting the job done. And that's partly why he is, uh, this talk's labelled uh, the forgotten uh, Arctic explorer. It's partly his fault. Um, he, he, was, he was supposed to go to the palace and get a, some kind of medal from Queen Victoria, but he wouldn't, so it was sent in the post instead. You know. um, but it wasn't all his fault. It was also a little bit, because of his bizarre background, because he was illegitimate and because he was not an Anglican, uh, he wasn't going to get a knighthood or a peerage or anything like that. That wouldn't have been possible. Um, so that's just another factor, I think, um, in, in, as to why this story wasn't better known. But it's also even more because he didn't write it up. I read you a little bit from his log, but it's a very sparse account, the log. And he never, ever wrote the great uh, narrative which you would have assumed would have emerged from this story. Um, so he, he didn't think his, his uh, exploring days were over. He thought this was just a, this wreck was just a minor blip, and that he'd be at, back out there. But he was already getting on a bit. He was, you know, already kind of late middle age, um, and it wasn't very realistic. He had lots of land in East Sussex, where I live. Uh, this is one of his properties. It was called Dottenham Manor. Uh, it's got his initials. You can't see, but on that white square, that his initials are still there o- over the. Um, over the window there. It's now a uh, nursing home. It's a very grim place, actually. <laughs> he, he had lots of other house properties in the, this part of East Sussex, and he was really, really interested in farming as well as in exploring. He loved shooting as well, not only polar bears, but he was a very, very good shot of, sort of pheasants and so on. But he was very interested in farming, particularly hop growing. So he was, you know, very, had other interests. And these interests kind of distracted him a bit from um, getting back to sea. Um, And then another thing distracted him very much from getting back to sea. He'd reached his late 50s, unmarried, and by far the richest member of his immediate family. So you can imagine how thrilled the younger siblings were when she appeared on the scene. And Ben, 59, Charlotte, 19, um, and penniless. Uh, she's a penniless French girl um, of great charm. Uh, uh, she's unnamed after her. This is Aunt Charlie. Um, so, 59-year-old Ben, um, yeah, married. Married Aunt Charlie. Married Charlotte, who was a uh, Charlotte Sellers. She was a um, 
an orphan. Um, she, she had a sister called Eugenie, who was even more beautiful. Eugenie was an archaeologist, and she was a lecturer uh, in London. I'm not quite sure which college, but she was a lecturer in archaeology. But she was so beautiful that she had to give her lectures from behind a screen. <laughs> teacher, well, and a sort of assistant in a, in a kind of little private girls' school at the time when Ben met her. So he married her, and steam came out of the collective ears of the members of the family who saw their inheritance being diverted. Um, but she was, in her own way, apparently a very remarkable, very amusing character, and uh, the, being so much younger um, than him, she lived on into the 1950s. Do you actually remember her, Peter? No. Um, <laughs> but, she had uh, a very exciting escape from Dunkirk. She, she had a, yes, she had, exciting, she had a very exciting escape from Dunkirk. She had a very full life of her own. But um, she's a, because she was so much younger, she's a kind of... Because our parents' generation knew her very well, she, there's a feeling of connection with that, the world of Uncle Ben through her, and uh, I'm actually wearing a brooch that used to belong to her. Um, here's Uncle Ben on a shooting party at one of his other houses, Scalens, which had been Sister Barbara's house. Um, there's Charlie. There's their older of their two sons, Val, Valentine, and uh, some other um, friends. Um, oh. <laughs> There's Uncle Ben with his two sons, Valentine and Philip. Uh, however, by the time Philip was born, the marriage was beginning to show signs of wear and tear, uh, and there were plenty of rumours that Philip wasn't actually Ben's son. Um, and my aunt always said how whenever they saw Cousin Phil, everyone would peer at his eyes to check the colour and so on. <laughs> and by that, it's probably salacious gossip. Uncle Ben is there in front of a tree that, unbelievably, given how big it is, but it's true, he planted that but from a seed. It's um, a Wellingtonia. And he brought it back, the seeds back, where, where, as quite a young man. He went to Yosemite uh, in California on a, a, a different kind of expedition. And he brought all these seeds back. And I've got at home the envelope that he kept the seeds in and on it he's just it's got it's printed Yosemite Hotel California and then in his handwriting it just says big trees <laughs> <laughs> and they are indeed big trees and there's a lot of them and if you drive through our little patch in Sussex and you see a really really alarmingly big evergreen tree it almost certainly planted by Uncle Ben so he's left his mark on in many ways um, now, uh, Uncle Ben died in 1913. He, in his declining years, he became demented. Uh, he, um, in the last few years, he could no longer you know, be responsible for his own money and his own affairs. And so people had to help him. And in fact, Dr. Neil, the ship's doctor, was his most devoted uh, friend and helper. And in the end looked after him when he was 
had to be totally nursed. Dr. Neil was in charge of that, which is really nice, I think. Um, so uh, when, when Uncle Ben was demented, and my great-grandfather, who's a doctor, had to go and interview him to see whether he was responsible enough to sort of sign his own checks and so on, my great-grandfather left a record of um, this conversation and it was, he went to see him on Christmas Eve and he asked Uncle Ben how close it was to Christmas and Ben didn't know and he asked him other questions about names of people and familiar places and Ben didn't know and then he showed him a picture of the Arctic and he said what can you tell me about this and Ben could still plot all his journeys completely accurately and he said he's old, lame and deaf and demented at this point but he said um yeah, I said, I haven't been to the Arctic for a long time, but if anybody asks me to go again, I think I will. <laughs> <laughs> so, 100 years after his death, in 1913, um, we decided to commemorate it. And when he died, he was given a wooden grave marker, not a stone, but a piece of oak with an inscription on it. And it's at Brightling Church in East Sussex, and the two graves behind the railings are those of his sister, Barbara Beauchamp, and also of their aunt, Aunt Dolly, who had been instrumental in bringing them up. And so Ben was buried alongside his sister and his aunt. Uh, but his wooden grave marker had become very, very decayed. So another of the extended, another three times great nephew, made a replica, uh, and so we used the, this occasion as a, 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 to install the replica um, and to, we had a nice little trip to Scott Polar and a, 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 to Jesus College Cambridge we had a bit of a sort of beano, a sort of benefit um, and this was the sort of culminating thing at Brightling um, with um, my aunt and uh, uncle um, who were conducting the, the service that went with it and a not desperately flattering <laughs> picture of me. Um, and there's the grave marker. It's an exact replica of the original one. In memory of Benjamin Lee Smith, Aunt Charlie chose these words uh, originally. In memory of Benjamin Lee Smith of Scalingsgate in this parish, who died in his 85th year, 4th of January, 1913, Five times he sailed the Arctic Sea and for his country's good braved countless hardships and perils. And because we had the ceremony in the hop season, we've got a, a wreath of hops there to, to uh, acknowledge that side of his life as well. Now, um, the last little bit of this story concerns the fate of Ira. Ira was at the bottom of the sea, and of course, no one had moved her, so it shouldn't have been all that surprising, really, perhaps, when she was found uh, in 2017, lying exactly where she'd been left. Um, she was spotted by, this is where the Russian side comes in, she was spotted by this uh, ship called Alter Ego, which is, let me get this right, um, yeah, it's well, it's a Russian uh, scientific uh, exploratory vessel, um, and it was manned by people from the Russian Arctic um, Association. 
They weren't specifically going to look for the wreck, but they realised that they, they, just, they, they found it. Their, their um, sound... Thank you. <laughs> uh, sort of identified that that was probably what was there. Uh, there they are, the divers in the, in the they're going to, to dive and see if they could find out more. Um, and so they did a quick exploratory uh, investigation then, and then a year later they went back and they did a much more thorough investigation with, with the divers, and they did a second one last year. Um, so, and they hope to do more. So they have established that this is Ara. Uh, she's not in good shape. It's not worth thinking that you could raise her. She's, but you could certainly explore more, get more artefacts from her. And also they say she's a very interesting um, ecosystem of her own because of all the sort of life forms that have um, grown and bloomed and clustered round the wreck. So this, this is a fantastic photo. And all these photos come from, they are, I need to credit them, uh, sorry Russians, I'm just to credit you at the beginning. Um, anyway, no, I'll buy my little card. But um, this photo uh, in 2018, I think, shows Ara Harbour, there's, there's the old photo, Ara Harbour, the Ara, Bell Island, and here is the same scene today, but with Alter Ego there. Um, oh, yes, Ara Lodge. Um, this is not Flora Cottage. This is not the, 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 where they overwintered. That, that's been destroyed by the elements. But on the year before, on the first Ara expedition, uh, they took a flat pack, which had been made in Peterhead, um, and took it with them, and they built it on Bell Island in Prince Joseph Land and named it Ara Lodge. And this was for, the shelter, for shelter for anyone who was travelling uh, through that region. And um, so people could, there were some simple stores left there, or people could just use it as a shelter or as a deposit for things that you know, they wanted to come back to. And Ara Lodge still stands remarkably. Uh, that flat pack prefab still stands but needs um, a bit of TLC, or more than a bit of TLC. It's very interesting. Inside, there's masses of graffiti uh, for, over the, for the last 130 whatever years, um, and well worth preserving. Um, and I don't think that anyone, any agency in Britain is doing anything at all about preserving that at the moment. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe they are. The Russians, I have to say, are far more interested in Uncle Ben and his legacy than the British are. So, uh, which, you know, they, they're kind of really surprised at how apathetic um, the Brits are about, about it. Um, so, you know, if anyone wants a sort of, you know, little cause to follow up, <laughs> rescuing Ira Lodge would be great. Um, and here is Maria Gabrilo, one of the uh, Russian Alter Ego team, and she's reading... My book. <laughs> <laughs> um, she's reading my book. Uh, Ira Lodge behind. So she's reading the, the, this this book, which is the book of family history. Uh, Hancock's. It's called. Um, it's got a lot about Uncle Ben in it. It's not all about him, but it's got a lot about him in it. And so she's reading the hardback 
edition, and I think I, I, that's well, obviously one of my favourite photographs. <laughs> um, is there a copy in the lot? Uh, I don't know if there's a copy in the lot. There ought to be. <laughs> um, it's actually out of print, but there's plenty on Amazon. If you do feel moved to get yourself a copy, get do what Maria's done, get a hardback, because it's got more pictures in it. Because the paperback, they, in cheapskate fashion, they cut out some of the pictures. Um, so I really ought to quickly say about Maria, and the reason that we were in touch with the, the, the Russian team at all, was that on March the 12th, um, 20... 17, 2018, 2018 um, Maria, uh, Russian, hadn't been doing it before. She walked up our drive and knocked at our front door. Uh, she was holding that large picture you saw of Ira Harbour. She was also holding a bottle of vodka and a large box of chocolates. And she had walked from Battle, which is a town about three miles away, and to get to find us, she had used the very beautiful, but mainly decorative map, which my cousin Tom kindly of created for this book. So she had held up this lovely <laughs> map, and she walked along with, you know, sort of, not exactly quite to scale with, and she walked along with her wonderful gifts. And um, it was just a week after the Salisbury poisonings. So when a <laughs> Russian arrives with a clear liquid, oh, hello, hello. And, and no anyway, she was absolutely delightful, and she said, I've brought these gifts, and I've come to celebrate Ben's 190th birthday. Um, Whoops. <laughs> it had sort of slipped my mind. <laughs> so anyway, then I took her out, showed her all the places where Ben lived in the area, and so on. Um, and she has provided me with these photographs. And here are photographs of some of the things they've retrieved from the wreck. Um, of course, when you, of course, it's lovely, obvious it's the IRA, isn't it? What else is it going to be? But they needed to prove that it was IRA. And so they were thrilled when they found uh, these bits of a, a flagon which say uh, Robert Kidd, wine and spirit merchant, Peterhead, because Peterhead was where IRA was made. And then that is also a uh, a ship supplier in London, Newgate, Thornthwaite, Newgate Street. So they were delighted with this kind of evidence. Um, and this is a marvellous thing. It's actually quite big. It's a kind of a, an ornamental sea serpent, and we're not quite sure what it was for, but it was just part of the Irish pictures, pictures and fittings, which is obviously rather a, a grand vessel. Uh, now, in September, as I mentioned earlier, Simon and I went to St. Petersburg, and Maria said, we'll come and, come and give a talk to, uh, us, to, the, to us polar people, and, and including some of the divers who'd been uh, down to the wreck. And I, I said, great, but I didn't know that I was going to give my talk aboard Krasin, which is a fantastic vessel, an icebreaker, built just before the... Uh, Russian Revolution, which was built in 1916. And she's a very glorious creature. So we went aboard and I gave my talk and Maria translated my talk. And this is Sasha, yeah. uh, one of the divers. Um, and this is Victor Boyarsky, who's basically the sort of head of the polar team. Um, and here we are, you can see all the lovely kind of Fittings of Crassine. 
Um, and we had a great evening, and I was very, very struck by how the, the, the Russians' enthusiasm uh, for all things Arctic, and particularly for this particular story. Um, and there we are, uh, outside. We're about to go off for a night of uh, vodka and reindeer meat um, in a Siberian restaurant. Uh, so this is some of the, the people. There's Maria, there's me, there's uh, two of the divers, um, Sasha and um, the, the, another Victor. Um, and this lady here is the um, owner of the ship Alter Ego, and the, she funded the trips. She, a private, as a private individual, this is not the Russian government enabling this to happen. This is a private individual funding these incredibly expensive trips, which is interesting. Uh, I don't know where she got her funds from, but she's a, she's a powerful individual. <laughs> so there we are. We um, had a, an extremely interesting time. Um, and that is the last of the slides. Um, so there you've got the Uncle Ben story with a very strong emphasis on the end of his exploring life. Um, the, th the, the three 1870s expeditions are all actually very interesting in their own right, but you'll be relieved to hear that I'm not going to deal with them now. But um, if you have any questions or comments, um, please fire away. gentleman explorer would be a dilettante who would have no sense of routine and who would have just thought, oh, you know, mm, go with the flow sort of thing. But no, it, absolutely, it was that routine and that sort of uh, force of character that helped everyone to survive. The earlier expeditions that he made before Arctic ones were Yosemite, which of course in those days was much more of an adventure than it would be now, much more wild. And he also did some in Africa, South Africa um, and also some in the kind of um, Central Europe, kind of. So he, he'd done quite a lot of exploring before, but nothing as dangerous or as daunting. Um, where he got his sense of routine? Where was he educated? Oh, good. Good question. Not far from here, in uh, very near White Hart Lane, Tottenham Hotspur football ground, uh, there's a place called Bruce Castle, which is a I think a Tudor house originally, um, which became a school for uh, kind of for Unitarians, which is and and it was his headmaster was Roland Hill, the person who invented stamps. And Roland Hill ran Bruce Castle School. I believe Jeremy Bentham started the school up actually, or it was sort of his idea. But it was a free, uh, not a free thinking school, a forward thinking school, 
uh, which, uh, where crucially they taught science. Science was compulsory. So if you, in those days, this is, Ben was born in 1828, so uh, in, this is in the 18, around about 1840s, early 40s, I suppose. In those days, if you went to Eden or Winchester or whatever, it was very much the classics and a bit of maths maybe, but not a lot else. But this school, Bruce Castle School, was science, engineering, and also um, they had a swimming pool, uh, and it was all kind of quite outdoorsy. So it may have been partly the school, but that wouldn't answer the whole question of why he was so disciplined. Um, it was partly perhaps because he'd come into these estates as quite a young man. He, 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 there was no real equality. He was given all vast amount of his his father's inheritance. Um, he, had, he ran these estates. I suppose and he ran them very well. He was very keen on, you know, he was a, a sort of efficient landlord um, and he was an efficient farmer. He, 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 he was, had a very systematic sort of mind. But I can't really get much further than that with saying why he had, whereas another person didn't. Um, he, I presented him properly as rather kind of stern and forbidding, but he was also he also had a lot of friends, and he you know he was quite fun loving, um, and there was a lot of dancing, and singing and so on. In even in uh, in the Flora Cottage in the middle of the Arctic, he would organise these dances uh, for the men. They had a a, a wind up musical box which they used. Uh, <laughs> um, so he did believe in fun. And he was always taking his nieces off to parties and giving them ball dresses and taking them to Paris for the weekend and so on. So he was quite a sort of bon viveur in his way. Um, but where the discipline <coughs> comes from, I, it's, a, you know, it's an interesting question, but all I, I can only really think it's sort of in him. Yeah. Yes? Did he have any sailing experience before he went on? Yes, he did. He loved ships, he loved sailing, uh, but his sailing experience before that had been um, maybe just fun, really. But he got, what's it called, he got the sort of like passport ticket thing which allows you to command your own ship. Ship ticket. Yeah, yeah. He got that as a quite an early stage. Yes? Um, you said that he, he's quite revered in Russia, and yes. quite well known, at least in these sort of circles. Do they have any mixed feelings, though, about the fact that it was a British expedition, if effectively, um, and that it could have potentially been some sort of territorial claim well, of a, an area that surely Russia had already laid Russia claim. hadn't really laid claim. No one had really properly laid claim okay. to Simon, had they? No. Um, <laughs> it still, it's still very much an era of empire expansion. And so that when on its his grave marker it says for his country's good, brave perils and hardships. Part of that idea of his country's good was expanding British territory. Um, that wasn't actually Ben's main motivation, but the public would have seen it that way, I think. Um, when did Russia take over those territories? I think, do you know? Later, Russia was interested yeah. in that time in the Great South. Yeah. What, yeah. What, 1920s, I think. 1920s, yeah. So, uh, post, because post it was Austria who I think discovered it first. Right, yes, it was. That's why it's called Franz Josef Land, of course. Benjamin yeah. discovered 
is covered an enormous amount on that western side. Yes. And I think it's wonderful that the Russians filtering all those names. <laughs> yes. Yes. Including things like English Strait. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, it is. And actually, um, yeah, I mean, I think I won't, uh, it would be a bit glib to say it's, it's in good hands. Uh, it, it, to say the Russians are good hands sounds a bit glib, but actually, there is clearly a very, very thriving interest in the whole business in Russia. So, yeah. Um, but who, guys, yes, it was, it was Austria, I think, who actually owned it at that time. Um, yeah. Do you think Shackleton knew about this? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Shackleton's always, of course, the, the great sort of escape story. Um, you know, I think this story rivals. But if he, if, he, if he had known about it, it would have given him, you know, Yeah, yeah, probably would, yeah. Do, do, you, do you know about Shackleton's No, but I think they would have read the stories mm. because they did, they did read a lot, I think, at that period. So I think, you know, Scott had the Northern Party, which went to in high school. Mm. And uh, I think they might have known about it. Um, Shackleton had a man called Armitage on his expedition who, who wintered at Cape Flora with Frederick Jackson. Oh, right, yes. Later on. Yes. So I'm sure he would have known about yes. it. So I think it must have given them hope that they could survive a winter yeah. because of your great, great, great... Uncle. Yes, I mean, some of the lessons must have been learnt about yeah. about what they ate and about, you know, lots of things about other ways of um, maintaining um, uh, maintaining sufficient warmth and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yes. Um, you said they studied science and that, you know, he was involved, really involved in taking natural observations. I wonder if you know very much about how he engaged with the rest of scientific thought at that time. Um, it just struck me that the question yes. about Yosemite, Yosemite was very important for glaciology and right. geology and things like that. Right. Well, uh, what a very interesting question. I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> no, it is. It's, it's very important. It's, it's an area which I'm in fairly uh, shaky territory on. Um, so, um, Ben went on all his expeditions, even when I said that his first expedition to the Arctic was mainly about shooting, it, that wasn't quite true. He was always interested in natural history as well and collecting specimens. Um, he used to give, take stuff back, I think from Yosemite as well, for Kew Gardens and for the um, Natural History Museum. So he was quite in, in touch with um, those bodies and on the 1870s expeditions he took with him a very eccentric but very good naturalist called the Reverend um, Eaton E-A-T-O-N uh, who obsessively collected um, data and um, I believe is quite an important um, fund of, of information but uh, I'm, it's just not at all my area of expertise contemporary piece of interesting scientific debate to try and answer your question now is that the year that this happened the ice was uncharacteristically extensive yes and that was interesting for shipping 
because of course now it's much more interesting because it's a sort of uh, an aberration of the of the surface ice which is, is you know, right at the centre of the debate about what decline in surface ice in the Arctic means now and where what's happening. So it's become a very important record purely in terms of the extent of ice they encountered in the three previous voyages as well, and the four previous voyages. But of course, it's, yeah, it's quite it's a highly charged debate, but it, it, it's very central because it's the earliest data of ice extent in, in the world. Right. Yeah. Oh, those, two, those two pictures, the old one and the new one. Yes. They, yes. Um, are they taken at the same time of year? Uh, yes, they are taken at the same time of year. Um, absolutely. Mm. So yeah. those two. Yeah. 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 Even the. There was a little glacier which is almost as thin. Yes. Yeah. No, they are taken at the same time of year. But it is it's complicated because the ice that year was much more extensive than normal, so you have to be careful about that. Which is why they got into trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, any other? Um, yes. Um, you, you said that you kept a log. Yes. As the leader. But yes. Normally the captain would keep a log as well. And yeah. You, that, has that survived? Yes. Because obviously it, it, that gives you more details about what, what, what yes. was actually happening. The log was the captain's log. Yeah. And for some reason, Ben took over the keeping of the log right. once they were, well, I suppose because after the wreck, the captain was in theory no longer the captain. So, but Ben decided that he would keep going with that dog, and that survives in the Scott Polar uh, Museum. Um, but it's an astonishingly unemotional uh, account. I mean, I know dogs are meant to be unemotional, but nevertheless. So the bit I read about the men sitting up in their book nest, like blackbirds in their nest, that's about as, as lyrical as you get. Mostly it is a useful but very, very dry record of um, temperatures and so on, and how many bears killed and what have you. And um, every now and then he'll say something like, all well. Or, you know. <laughs> That's a bit like Scots. Yeah. Scots is the same. It, is it very... It's not very emotional. No. Day to day, it it's yeah. It's, it's not a sort of personal diary at all. Um, and then I will just actually read you a poem, uh, a verse rather than a poem, which... Um, my great-grandfather wrote this when Ben married Charlie. This just gives a sort of image of Ben's character, really. When Ben married young, glamorous Charlie, uh, my great-grandfather was quite bitter about Ben because it was his marriage that Ben had tried to stop, which I mentioned earlier about how we wouldn't all be here if Ben had had his way. He, ben tried very, very hard to, to scupper my great-grandparents' uh, engagement. And so then all these years later, when Ben married Charlie, our great-grandfather wrote this, these verses, which I just found in a, um, a scrapbook. They weren't meant to be seen by... He didn't send them to Ben or anything. Uh, so it's just called Benjamin Lee Smith. My name is Ben, and I can hate. In love I'm no adept. To die of want once seemed my fate. Unmoved mid bears I slept. I lived upon the wild beast's blood, Tenderer were they than I, and miles around the frozen flood wearied my dauntless eye. I neither cared for God nor man, for sister nor for friend, yet love such as I have I can give you till my life's end. Though years have passed since I was young, I feel my frame is tough, and when my passing bell is rung, I'll leave you wealth enough. 
I am grey and old and have no heart, but offer you my hand, and golden store I can impart, and well with men I stand. I have shown constancy in hate, and that I can in love. If you will trust me with your fate, you may, and thus I can in love, if you will trust me with your fate, you may yet live to prove. So it's kind of quite strong stuff. <laughs> um, Norman. Norman. Yeah. That's Norman, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, not for publication, just written, written privately. Jesse Obstein. Um, that's a kind of a bit of a smokescreen thrown over the fact that I can't answer your very interesting questions about the science of it. Um, but I think there is uh, this, this book actually which is not by me it's by an American academic Peter Capolotti uh, and it's about a shipwreck at Cape Flora it is about um, Ben's life on all his expeditions and this has far more of that kind of information yeah, I'm, I just really found the gossip <laughs> yes has anyone traced the other the sailors to see if they went on to do more expeditions um, I'd like to know more about that. Um, how, uh, I don't know very much about that. I, I believe there is some follow-up. Um, the, uh, the only one, the only one I know about is rather sadly. What I said they all survived, and they did. But one of them had a, a mouth cancer and died very soon after getting home. Uh, can't be any fun rowing across the Arctic seas with mouth cancer. Um, but. I think some of them did go, you know, I think they dusted themselves down and got back on the sea, mm -hmm. probably. Yeah. Oh, yes. The, the doctor, who ended up very yes. wonderfully caring yes. did he go back to the Arctic? I don't think he did go back to the Arctic, but he went on being a doctor and he was also, he was a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, so I think he also became more and more in, uh, active in that um, mm. area, yeah. Um, but I, he's an interesting character, I'd like to know more about him. Yeah. And we are going to soon know a lot more about one of the earlier expeditions because the journal of um, uh, a young lieutenant, Lieutenant Chernside, who went on one of the earlier trips, along with these photos I mentioned that have been rediscovered, is, it, this is going to be published sort of fairly soon, so that will give a, an interesting uh, new angle. What's his name? Uh, Lieutenant Chermside, C-H-E-R-M-S-I-D-E. Um, and his, his journal is very much a journal of a young man. He's always saying things like, um, you know, it's minus 40 degrees, but it doesn't feel cold at all. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, any, anyone else? Yes. Talking about gossip, what happened to Charlie? Charlie, right. <laughs> um, well, um, Charlie uh, didn't remarry, um, though she did have admirers, shall we say. Um, and she, she, she was, and became even more, a very firm Roman Catholic. And in one of the houses that Ben left her, a farmhouse near us, she set up um, a, a Catholic chapel. There was no, this is, and people, other Catholics from the area could use this because there wasn't much. Uh, facility for them. Um, she, it, just a, the Catholic thing is quite an interesting sideline. Ben was essentially, he'd been brought up as a Unitarian, but he was essentially a, an atheist or an agnostic at, at least. He was pretty kind of uninterested in organised religion. 
Um, but Charlie said, and he, Charlie, as an old lady, passed this story down to my Aunt Mary, or Tom's mother, um, that Mary will remember Charlie saying that when, in the spring of the, after the shipwreck, the uh, polar bears were scarce because they were underground with their cubs, the seabirds were scarce, the wars were scarce, he was getting really worried about supplies. And he lay down on his bunk in Flora Cottage and turned his face to the wall and recited the Lord's Prayer. And then he got up and he went out and there was a bear and he shot it. Um, and, so, and Charlie said, so you see, he was a religious man in his way. <laughs> and she said, she said, my Ben. She looked rather sweet. He was a religious man in his way, my Ben. So despite everything, he was still... Um, so other things that happened to her, well, um, yes, excited escape from Dunkirk. She'd gone over to uh, help rescue fallen women, hadn't she? Try and save them from saved soldiers. They were French and British soldiers. French. <laughs> yes, they're not from German soldiers. No, <laughs> friendly fire. <laughs> um, but yes, and then she got all sort of tangled up and had to get. Sent a telegram to the family saying she got the Rubens Hotel. Always improved my views of the Rubens Hotel. Right. <laughs> but uh, no, she, so, yeah, she was a, a, a vivacious, lively person who had a lot of kind of interest, but she didn't have a career as such and, and didn't, really, didn't really need to. Um, but was a great favourite in the family. When she was young, she had a waist that Uncle Ben could put his hand on. Yes, yeah, she had a tiny wee waist. Yes. And where are the artefacts that have been found? Oh, good question. Yes, the bits and bobs from Ira are in a uh, ocean museum in uh, Kaliningrad. Yeah. Yeah, which is in S. It's in Russia. It's actually in Russia. Yeah, but then. Right. Used to be Used to be Konigsberg. Konigsberg, that's right, yes. And uh, in fact, that museum are hoping to put on a, an exhibition. Once they've got more, they're going to have an exhibition. So nice to have I think we ought to have a higher bus. That's Yes. May I first thank you for fascinating wonderful lecture and I do hope you will publish all this new material as well particularly the photographs well yeah the photographs as I said I'm very embarrassed as I can't get read I meant to read out the attribution of them but um, they, Maria uh, Gabrilo the, the, the Russian lady sent them to me they've published this little booklet but they, I mean, they gave us this but it's only uh, it, 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 they only got it in, in, in Russia as yet. Um, but they are intending to write it up, um, it, you know, write, write a proper account, and I hope that will then be translated into English. May, may I just make one other comment? Yeah. And that's about the little refuge hut on Bell Island. Yes. Because I think... Oh, is it? I think that's equivalent to the huts in the Antarctic of Shackleton and Scott. Yes. Um, and I think the British people, as you rightly said, we should be at least offering to help yes. the Russians to look after. I had the pleasure and privilege of visiting Franz Josef Land for a couple of two years, um, and I visited that little hut. Um, there were just signs of Arctic foxes living in it. <laughs> and, uh, there were 
some writings in pencil of uh, Benjamin Lee's crew on it. And the Russians were doing their best to look after it. It's part of their national park. But it, it, it's in, as you said, not very good condition. And we now have, a, Britain now has a lot of experience of looking after old huts in the Antarctic. So I think we should write to our polar section in the Foreign Office and try and encourage them to offer help. Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously the Russians you know, have a look after wooden huts, mm. but you know, it would be a, a very nice gesture. Yes, and it would actually be quite a, um, something that Pushkin House is sort of, in a way, yeah. designed to do. Designed to do, yes. <laughs> and, and there are many people now on these ships that go off there, you know, they, have, they have this big Russian icebreaker, 50 years of picture, I think it's called, which goes to the North Pole and Franz Josef Land. So there are quite a few people now who visit that little hut. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know how, what's the best way to go about, um, but uh, perhaps, perhaps you and I should uh, talk about how who to contact um, at the Foreign Office and get a bit of momentum on it. Yeah. Any, any other comments? Yes. Did you say that they had been looking for quite a long time for the island? Well, not really. I mean, it's so odd that, in the sense that it can't have been very mysterious as to where she was. And it surprises me that no one had really kind of bothered, apparently, to, to have a good look, including no one from Britain, because, you know, it is quite interesting finding shipwrecks. Um, but the, the Alter Ego were not specifically looking... They knew that she, they might come across her, but they were actually on a... Um, more of a kind of marine biology type expedition um, and just happened to be. Didn't they find a bit of wood floating about or something? I think it did, yes. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. They, yeah, I found a bit of. A bit of mahogany. Mahogany, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a sideboard or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Floating along. Yeah. Any, any, anyone else? Or, um, yes. Are there records from the rest of the um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, actually, no, there is. There's, well, there, uh, one of them is called Robertson, and he wrote quite a lot. Um, but it, I think it was about the first expedition. Uh, I would have thought that Dr. Neal is probably. Um, there's pr if anything survives of Dr. Neal's papers, I'd have thought he'd be the best bet. Um, because most of the other men were not men of letters, shall we say. Um, you know, I doubt they'd be very much written. Um, but I Dr. Neil quite quite possibly. But I, I I mean I would actually love to find out more about him, but I haven't as yet done so. He ought to be a, quite easy to track down though, since he was a member of the Royal Geographical mm -hmm. Society and since we know where uh, we know where he lived at the end of Ben's life anyway, it was in Frognal in Hamps in uh, Hampstead. And Doctor Neil was living with him in Frognal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't. I think just just in a rented house. Yeah. I don't think there is particular reason for for living there. Yeah. Well, if that's um, thank you all very very much for coming. This episode of the Pushkin House podcast was recorded live at Pushkin House on the twenty second of January, twenty twenty. It was edited and produced for Pushkin House by me, Rafi Hay. For more archive material, please check out our YouTube channel or follow our podcast.